welcome to the Data Chaos Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Wells. On today's episode, I have a conversation with Sabin Thomas. Sabin is the founder and CTO of Zing Data, the mobile-first business intelligence solution. During this conversation, we dig into the many challenges of delivering analytics and visualizations to mobile devices. The conversation weaves through LLMs and SQL hallucinations, and we discuss the challenges of cross-compilation in order to support multiple mobile architectures. To be honest, Sabin's technical knowledge goes deep. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. All right, Sabin, welcome to the Data Chaos Podcast. I appreciate you sitting down with me and uh, having a conversation. Thanks so much, Tyler. It was great to connect with you again uh, after we recently connected, but looking forward to this. Yeah, that's right. Connected in uh, out in Vegas at the Snowflake Summit at a Bitcoin, of, of all yeah. things, a, a, a Bitcoin happy hour at a Snowflake Data Summit. That was kind of interesting. That's correct. We were at the bar uh, grabbing a couple of drinks and uh, we got to talking and it was uh, great to hear your story and, and likewise. So yes. <laughs> interesting place for that. But yeah, let's, let's kick things right off. I want to hear about mobile first business intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, mobile first BI, and that's what we do here at Zing Data, uh, where I am the CTO co-founder. We are very focused very much on what it is for usage patterns for business intelligence for the mobile users right now, as well as if you picture out five years from now, what is going to be the dominant usage pattern for charting, visualizations, data analysis. And more often than not, in my history, in my team's history, we have all been at meetings where getting quick access to data on your phone would help that conversation or would help that decision. And we just never had that tooling. And so this is sort of the problem that we have set out to solve. And we think it's very uh, optimal and very in line with a lot of other tooling, uh, given the pandemic, the shift in work patterns. I think this is sort of going to be the dominant use case for how people interact with data going forward. Got it. So to simplify, essentially... I've got my mobile device, I've got my data hooked up to Zing Data, and instead of having to log into my laptop, log into some console or something else like that, I can pull those interactive charts or rich visualizations right up on my phone. They're snappy, they're interactive, and I can you know, maybe close that deal or, or use that data to infer some sort of information that's going to help me, you know, whatever problem I'm solving. Yeah, very much so. I mean, so in our conversations with with folks, you know, people that have not interacted with data teams, and then also at larger enterprises that have full-fledged data teams or are able to come up with any kind of visualization and any kind of analysis request, we found to be able to answer ad hoc questions, there was still a gap. Either you didn't have the right kind of tooling, or you were at a much larger company and you had to wait on you know, time from your data analyst to be able to get that kind of analysis for you. And we said, this is sort of like the, the sweet spot for us. These, re- these ad hoc asks of data that people want to be able to ask, because these are in the moment questions. These are in the moment things that they haven't pre-thought of or, or have had the time to request. But for what I need now, for what I'm trying to do, what's a quick way to get in an answer to a data analysis? And this is where we think you know we do really well. So our mobile interface is one part of it. The other part is really the ability to 
to freeform ask questions of your data, to be able to do join, to be able to do ask questions that are more interactive. We have an LLM integration as well, so there is a whole natural language piece to it. There's also the mobile interface where you can drag and drop stuff to be able to get a quick you know, cut of sales grouped by region. And so these are these ad hoc questions that you just don't necessarily get with this current state of dashboards from other vendors right now. Got it. So you've got a couple of tiers to your solution, essentially. So yeah. let's, let's, we'll leave the front end alone for a second. Let's go tackle the back end of that. So walk me through, what is it like for a customer to get set up with Zing data? Where does my data have to be? What kind of data do I have to have? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, yeah, so Zing Data right now works with multiple data sources. You can keep your data where you have it, you know, be it a Postgres, a MySQL, a Google Sheet CSV, which we find to be very common use cases, uh, all the way up to a Databricks Snowflake, and then also ERP systems and CRM systems as well. You can have that data be where they are. The, the setup process is very simple. There's about four or five clicks to be able to connect to any one of those sources. And once that's been done on your phone, you now have the full power of querying that. And the mechanisms to query could be a few things. You could use natural language. I can speak to my phone and say, uh, what's the best attempt of being able to show this visualization? Or uh, more uh, deterministically, I can, I'm presented with an X and Y axis. I can drag fields over there from various columns and be able to do complex joins and analysis. And so these are sort of both mechanisms where I can sort of get to a question, a data. And the, the, the thing about mobile data analysis and you know all of our feature set is completely available on web as well. So there's no feature difference there. We have full feature parity. But very interestingly, we've seen different interaction patterns when it comes to mobile. When you're asking an ad hoc question from your phone, uh, you typically want to get a quick slice of data and from there on be able to do sort of what's chained data analysis. And so in terms of the back end, we recognize that. We understand that you're in a particular location, you're trying to query store sales data, and we're able to put those attributes together and construct that query so you get a quick slice of data that's very relevant to you. From that point on, you can kind of slice and dice on uh, different things. A mobile form factor, the screen real estate is not very large, and so we have to give you the most prominent sets of your data first. And this is where we kind of do some complex SQL windowing, we do some ranking, internal categorizations of your data. So when you ask something simple like, show me sales group by region, we're showing you the most relevant data sets. So that's sort of what the backend is really involved in. We, we think of it more as a query federation, query optimization layer that is translating your taps, clicks, and then various attributes about where you are into what's an optimal query that gives you relevant data sets. And then you can kind of slice and dice later on. Got it. Got it. Okay, makes sense. So my data is staying in the in the sort of you know whatever solution I'm using today, whether it's Postgres, Snowflake, Databricks, or like you said, a, a Google Sheet. That data stays there. I ask right. questions in natural language, or I use the the interface. You're translating that into the correct you know API calls, whether it's SQL or something else. Google Sheet's not SQL, or they do kind of have a SQL interface. You're making that translation and then very quickly returning that response. That's correct. And so, then so, the visualization. Yeah. yeah, very much so. So Google Sheets surprisingly does have its own uh, SQL, <laughs> which yeah. is not anti-SQL compliant by any means. Yeah. And so this is where we do a good amount of normalization across different syntaxes because your experience when you interact with 
a CSV shouldn't be that different from a Postgres database. Like we don't want people to have to understand the differences in the data sources. That should be as simple as I want to get this kind of chart. I want to get this visualization. I want to get this result. Uh, and so for us, there's a ton of normalization. There's a ton of SQL variances that we have to kind of comprise. Uh, but ultimately, the the user has to not know any of this. And this is where we spend a ton of time optimizing that query for what they're trying to run. So our backend is very much, like I mentioned, a normalization and optimization and also a federation layer. Uh, and then on top of that, when we interact with LLMs, there's LLM waterfalls that we run through. We are trying to understand outputs from LLMs and match that with the question that's being asked. We're doing similarity contexts and then ultimately giving you the most relevant answer. So in a sense, there's a, a chain of this type of backend processing that needs to happen so a user can get to a result and then be able to take that further with more analysis and then be able to share that. So, Cool. And was Zing developed with the usage of LOMs from day one? Was that sort of a, a cornerstone of, of what you wanted to offer? Very much no. In fact, we were anti-LLM to begin with. You know, oh. the, the company has been around for about a year and a half now. And the thesis has always been making data analysis simple. That's the mission that we want to have. Mobile is a very much important context for that thesis because everyone does work on their phone now. You're you're slacking on your phone and you're also emailing on your phone and you're also doing that on your desktop. And so giving that seamless, ubiquitous experience is important. And we felt for data analysis, it just wasn't there. The present state of tooling was very much, I had to open up a laptop. I needed a data analyst to configure things for me. I needed a data engineering team to set up alerting infrastructure so I can get notified on trending data. So we said, what's the best way to remove all that and make this as deterministic as possible? So our day one goal was always to make it simple. And in that scenario, when you're working with data, it's very important to get the right data for what I'm asking. And LLMs, in, in sort of our evolution as a company, sort of came up halfway. OpenAI, you know, December is when they kind of made GPT-3 vastly available uh, in its context. It was always around before that. And then in that context, we really, really took a hard look at the state of LLMs. What can it do for SQL completion? And we found there's still a difference. It's not able to solve sort of, in, in our case, most things that people ask for if you have a very small schema or a very small database, you can kind of get some meaningful output from it. But very much so, it's just non-deterministic. And so for us, you know, we thought about whether this should really be a part of our product. And we said, if we can guide the user to, to what they're trying to get to, but, that, but then still show them a deterministic response, which is like simple as an XY axis that you can drag stuff on. And if we marry those uh, approaches correctly and the user has fine, a good understanding of what's happening, I think then it becomes a good part of that product. And so for us, you know, we really are in the business of not showing wrong data. We are very much in the space of making things simple. And if LLMs are a good component of that, we will make that available. If it's not, we will tell you this is not the right uh, input and here's a better way to show it. So, so in, in our mechanism, we have sort of multiple mechanisms of being able to get to the, the results. Yeah, because you've, you've got to prevent sort of the hallucinations that Very much, have, yes. have the potential to show up. 
Um, oh are there goodness. any are there any good hallucination stories you can tell that you've seen uh, as you were developing this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like if you think about like the Northwind database, right? Very popular data schema that most people are aware of. If you're just trying to get uh, sales data, in our uh, experimentations with you know Google Palm V2 with the code models, the text models, Cohere, uh, OpenAI GPT 3, 3, 3.5, 4, it's amazing to see the number of hallucinations get more amplified with the larger models. If you ask a simple question like, who are my top salespeople, which on a Northwind database is a very simple query to say, you know, sum of sales and or revenue grouped by salesperson, GPT-4 will really come back with some strong, <laughs> strong uh, output saying that these are my top five people, which are completely fabricated. Uh, and this is with things like temperature settings, which, you know, change the creativity responses on, on GPT-4, even those being dialed down to zero we're still in getting back some really strong hallucinations. And so we have to actively work against it. Um, and so uh, even for sample data, we're seeing like problematic responses. And so these are things that we, we really try to understand what's the best mechanism to like to understand that and then provide the most optimal response. And so we have this LLM waterfall internally in our backend as well that says, try GPT-4 if that doesn't work, try GPT-3.5, go back to Google Palm V2 if I'm on a BigQuery database. And so multiple mechanisms that take various attributes of what the user is trying to query. Yeah, because that's got to be interesting. You, you mentioned a you know, relatively very simple query, top yeah. users or you know, top sales folks by revenue, and it gets it wrong. It does, So Yeah, yeah. and so you know, you, you, it's, it's sort of like, okay, then what is the value, right? What, what, is, what is the additional value that I'm going to get from the LLM utilizing that if it gets something as simple as that, that you yeah. as a human can turn around and write in seconds but it gets wrong. And does it get it wrong yeah. every time or is it some percentage of the time? Yeah, so for, in our experience, some of the larger models are coming back with hallucinations a good percentage of the time for that particular sentence question that you had asked. Um, some of the earlier models were actually better at this. So the decommission models from OpenAI because of various other reasons, the, um, the code models, the codex models, for example, are very good about giving you good completion Google Palm V2's model on, on code Bison, for example, is also very good about giving you some good responses that are not hallucinated. But the larger models, the GPT-4s, and again, I don't have experience on Llama 2s. We, we still have to work that into our backend yet. But the GPT-4s, for example, are, are, again, understanding the context that it's been trained on, I can see why those hallucinations come to light. If you have you know, a, a database model that does not rely on commonly used terms like salespeople, you know, revenue. Uh, if you have some other things, I think you can avoid the problem of hallucination, but on very common contexts like sales and revenue <laughs> and products and customers, these are things that, the, that for some reason are showing up in, in increasingly more in our hallucination. So in our back end, we actively work against this uh, to avoid this and optimally choose those models to not show up. Uh, but this is a common problem that we're seeing that I think will only get worse the more parameterization and more quantization you do with with bigger and stronger models. And do you think there's ways that you can go in and, and train it, you know, sort of train the models? I know that OpenAI released, I think it was last week, a new API where you can pay to essentially train it and help it get, help it get better. Is that something y'all are looking at? 
Yeah, so fine-tune LLMs are... Fine are sorry, yeah, yep, that was what I was looking so, for, fine-tune. <laughs> yeah, so fine-tune LLMs are, are a big a part of what we do as well. Yeah, so OpenAI has made fine-tuning available on GPT-3.5. It's not available on GPT-4. Uh, Google Palm V2 has had fine-tuning available for some amount of time, and we've actually been had, we've had this in the product for about three, four months now at this point, where I can actively fine-tune against my data set. It does require some amount of work, to be able to provide, you know, existing questions, you need kind of a curated mm-hmm. list of questions to be able to add to the model and and, and make those fine tuning available. So we have all that already in product. It does require some manual massaging, but once you have that, based on the query, we can actually see better completions. The stats are still things we're compiling, but we're seeing some good, you know, thirty to forty percent improvement at least in the questions that we're seeing uh, against a fine tuned LLM versus a non fine tuned LLM. So. It's very helpful um, given a large enough data set that we can kind of do this. Another thing that's part of the Zing product is also collaboration layer. So if there are questions that have been asked, you can kind of save them down as questions and then they get collaborated on with other folks. And then you kind of build this mass understanding of a concept. We use those inputs into, as, into our fine-tuned LLMs as well. So you can sort of accelerate the knowledge base and kind of get additional training out of that to get to even better completions. Yeah, I like the collaboration aspect. We use the collaboration aspect with the, our observability tool that we use called Honeycomb. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we've been using that for our observability since day one at, at Propel. And, and they've got that sort of that same collaborative element where I can go in and look and see what are the questions my team members have been asking yeah. of our observability data. Because that might right. save me a lot of time, especially if I'm troubleshooting something that maybe they've asked it already or maybe they've saved that off. And then I can reutilize that or I can make it better and enhance it. Definitely yep. like that functionality a lot. And it sounds very similar to what um, you're doing there at Zing. Yeah, it very much solves this, like, I think this cold start problem that sometimes we get into with data analysis. You know, I'm, I'm looking at a brand new data set. What is this first question that I'm trying to ask? Am I in exploratory mode or am I, am I looking at trying to get a result? Mm-hmm. And so this collaboration layer really solves this cold start issue because if you've seen questions that your immediate network has asked, you know that becomes your seed to be able to ask other questions based off of that. I can kind of fork that question and be able to change another filter. And now I've got my own saved question that came up from a collaborator on question. So what was the catalyst to, to start this mobile-first BI? Was it something yeah. that was missing at your previous job? Was it something that's just missing in the market completely? I'd love to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very much a personal story. So both uh, my co-founder, Zach, and myself, in, in both of our roles as uh, you know, product leaders and engineering leaders at different companies, have found ourselves trying to make decisions on product roadmap. You know, This is many companies ago. And just didn't have the data in front of us. And you just leave that meeting you know, unsatisfied, saying that we'll go back to our desks, try to crunch this data, and then come back and solve this. And that could have been solved very easily if we had something like Zing. And so that was sort of the genesis. You know, we we have things that we want to be able to do. We want to make data-driven decisions. We just don't have it in front of us. And this is sort of an ad hoc question and an ad hoc ask. And we've seen this happen multiple times. Uh, and we said, this would be cool if we had something like this for us. That was sort of the genesis of the idea. The target market initially was very much 
you know, an engineering director like myself in previous roles, a product manager, a chief product officer in, in, in different roles. Like we very much thought that this is the target market. We want to be able to get answers to data for these very technical uh, type roles. And, you know, we got on this, we kind of built an early version of the product, kind of bootstrapped it, launched it out, put it out in the market. And we were kind of surprised by the, the earlier users of the product. We found these personas to be very different from what we thought would be the initial ones using it. One quick example is, uh, you know, somebody at uh, truckmovers.com. This is a, a company that will ship a truck to you if you've bought one. So if you buy a Volvo truck, they will ship the truck to you. So a trucker for trucks. Mm-hmm. And we found their warehouse IT admin with a MySQL database plugged it into Zing Data to be able to get inventory and, and logistics info so they could use it as well as the truck drivers. And we said, that's a very different persona from a technical you know, product manager or engineering leader type role. And that just started to snowball. We saw people in um, event management, you know, trying to set up seating chart info. People at Live Nation plugged us in to be able to get seating chart info for whatever concert they were trying to run. And we said, we took a step back and we said, wait a minute, this is a persona that we never anticipated or never understood initially to want something like this. And then the more we tried to to, uh, understand that, the more it became clear to us there is really this untapped market that would benefit a lot from having easy access to data and are not at these you know, uh, large data conferences or are in the LinkedIn groups with, that talk about this current state of data tooling. They have very simple needs and just don't have a form factor to be able to use that easily enough. These are people that are not going to spin up you know, a Tableau or, or any other type of product that don't have large DBT models, uh, but have very simple needs. And so that was sort of um, what we came to in terms of a realization, sort of what we um, went full hog into Zing Data as well. And, you know, where we are now, I think, you know, that is still very much present in terms of how we build our features. There's an untapped uh, market for data analysis. And if you go to a, a, an enterprise that has all this sort of tooling, they would still benefit from a very simple product that makes this easy to use. And so that's sort of like the spectrum of users that we target and we, we constantly think about for every feature we, we build. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's a nice wide range of, of use cases and users. What did you learn when you went into that, that more simplistic sort of use case and you reach out to those folks? Like, what were some of the things you came back with Like, that were kind of those aha moments? You know, other than just using it, but from like a product or a feature perspective. Yeah, so understanding that user was was really something I would say that didn't come easy to us because we imagine, you know, that there's a standard SaaS company, there's a standard SaaS persona who's got this set of tools and this set of set of data infrastructure, and this is what would be useful to them. But the more we dove into it, you know, the better we understood it. We said. These are folks that are in the field, that are out there, that have a job to do, have a very set list of tasks, and require this amount of data to be able to, to drive those tasks. Um, their data infrastructure is not that complex. You know, it could be as wide-ranging as uh, a simple CSV or an Excel sheet that gets updated every quarter or every month, or even more frequently. Their IT needs are also very simple. You know, their access patterns are also simplistic. They have very simple apps or are using common CRMs or common other systems that are driving data into this. 
So your simple MySQL, Postgres, CSV, Google Sheets uh, is where these companies start out from. And the larger they become, you know, the, the more advanced those infrastructures become. Um, so that was one thing. Okay, what's the data landscape of these users? Second, what is their access to tooling? And the more you ask them about, have they been talked to by other companies? Have they thought about things like a Tableau or any other kind of visualization software? Uh, and th the more we get blank stares because these are things that, you know, they just don't have time to investigate. You know, they, they need something now and what's the best way to get to it? If they didn't use something like Zing, what they would have used is an export into a CSV and then some kind of charting software. And then that gets shared out via email. Mm -hmm. And we said, okay, there's a way to make that easy. Uh, there's a way to make that handy. There's a way to make that friendly. And so those are some takeaways that we, we understood. The other thing too is interactivity with the product also matters. Uh, if these are fields, field folks, you know, people on the factory floor, people out in construction, people out in logistics, they have a problem with connectivity. And this is kind of true for any kind of mobile app. Your, your connectivity goes up, down. You know, you're on 5G one time, you're on 3G, 4G. And so in that kind of landscape, uh, requiring a persistent connection to a database is problematic. And so when you're trying to do things like crunch numbers, trying to get output from your data, these are things that we keep in mind and we, we really have to understand well and why we've designed that into the product as well. Some quick things there, like landscape, connectivity, usage patterns also very different. You know, these are folks that are in the midst of doing 200 other things. They want to be able to do four or five taps to be able to get what they want, and that's it, and be able to do their task. And so these are things that we've really tried to understand from a optimal product usage as well. Yeah, I mean, to kind of dig into that mobile-first, the mobile-first technology challenges, you said something interesting where you know, they're connected than losing connectivity. They're, you know, they're, they're basically going from access point to access point. You don't have a persistent connection. You're probably having to do a lot of the, like the, the, the aggregation or you're, you, you can't stream that data, for right. instance, all of that to the mobile device. Let's talk a little bit yeah. more about some of those technical challenges that were specific to that mobile first use case that, that you guys had to, had to solve. Yeah, so, so the network connectivity was a big thing, which is, you know, if I'm going back and forth between network connections, if I'm doing things like backgrounding an app, you know, depending on your phone's battery configuration, it will kill network connections. Uh, and so, so we really had to think about, okay, what is the optimal protocol here that we need to use between the app and the back end, and then ultimately with the data source? And what level of edge compute do we really need to think about? We, we thought some about what level of edge compute we were prepared to undertake. The 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 problem there, though, is the mobile landscape and the OS landscape is very, very different. You know, your CPU and RAM on a mobile device is very limiting. There's only so much you can do in the way of pivot calculations on your device before your phone starts to shut down. And so for or that... Or burn a people, hole in your pocket. <laughs> very much, yes. You don't want to be on a flight with that happening. <laughs> so so, so, um, so those are things that we, we took to bear... And in the, uh, the product that we have, the level of on-device manipulation you do is taken with that level of understanding. You know, I can flip around my chart data. I can flip around and filter my, my data table on my phone. But anyway, if you're trying to page in and page out of data, that's when we will try to make connections out. And 
for when we're getting connections, we're prefetching some data based on your current level of connecting, and we are not prefetching in other cases. If you are in a situation where you have lost absolute connectivity, you can still manipulate data on your phone. And then when you come back online, we can still kind of do some prefetching in those scenarios. So those are things that we've thought about. Um, other things that are very materially important is actually the query structure. So if I'm trying to get, if I'm out in a franchise location, like take, for example, a 7-Eleven location, and I'm trying to look at same store sales because I'm the store manager, and I, at the same time, I'm trying to get out-of-stock inventory alerts, the query structure is what we also optimize. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for you to pull out historical data going back multiple years if you're trying to do same store sales. Very much so in the category of, of store items, let me show you the most relevant items for the highest sales. There's no need to add in a filter to pull out you know, low turnover items. So in our queries, we are doing these ranking window functions to be able to give you those optimal queries first. And that has an impact on the, the, the amount of data that gets shipped back and forth between the, the phone and, and our backend. Yeah, because you've got a mix of sort of, you know, on-device cache, right, in, in a yeah. sense, with edge compute. And that's got to yeah. be an interesting sort of that trade-off, like you're saying, deciding how much do I push to the device without making it do too much because I don't want to spin that thing up into, a, you know, I have a hot pocket going, burn a hole in my, my leg as it's trying to compute some, some large data set. But how much can I do on that edge do that computation, get that answer, send it over, but still maintain enough so I can, can so I have that interactivity, right? Is that does that yeah. sort of? Yeah, absolutely. Th- those are all ongoing concerns, and those are uh, big parts of our logic on the phone, for the phone app, and then uh, also for our backend for the query that this person is con- trying to construct. So, in our prefetching of the data and the queries that we run, these are attributes that we look into. So, a mobile phone device. If we know your location is in the store you're trying to get same store sales on, that is an automatic part of that filter. That's not something you have to add. And that shouldn't give you, you know, a one gig BigQuery result. Like that should give you a very finite, smaller amount of data. So these are things that we we make simple for the user. Got it. Got it. It's all abstracted away. And then what does your tech stack look like in order for you to, to solve these types of problems? Yeah, very much so. So, you know, in our journey as a company, we wanted to be able to to get good cadence on being able to release front end, back end, middleware, connector logic as well. So, for the app layer, one technology, one framework that we landed on was Flutter to be able to do both mobile app. You know, you kind of get cross compilation as a result of it. You get both iOS, Android, and then also web um, as part of something that comes from Google. So that was pretty handy to us with one code base. We can get full feature parity across all of these devices. And even on uh, OS devices as well, I can get a Mac OS app as well. I can get a Windows app as well, all built off the same code base. We are very cognizant about what it means to do sort of a native app versus the multiple streams that that would entail and to be able to always be in a state of, you know, shipping features across multiple code bases. So Flutter is something that helped us with that. Um, there were some early concerns with respect to rendering performance compared to a native app, you know, kind of a look and feel as well that we wanted to not have a user think about. These are, you know, when you're doing a a mobile app, it's very important that we stick to common paradigms with how you've interacted with an Uber app, for example. They're very simplistic. There are things I want to get to. I don't want to minimize the number of tabs. 
So Flutter is a big part of our app framework. We have other things with respect to our admin console, React, for example, Node.js. When it comes to the query optimization of federation layer, this is a little more complex where we're interacting with multiple databases, we're interacting with stream protocols, REST protocols. Uh, and so that is a mix of you know Python, Node.js, Scala, and some Java as well to be able to do those optimally as well. That kind of varies also by the connector we're working with, but mm-hmm. uh, all of those are specifically fine-tuned to be able to get the, the queries optimally run in those scenarios. Got it. And who's your cloud provider? We run on GCP right now, so that's okay. uh, that's been good for us. So, in terms of how we work with, you know, Redshift, for example, that's on AWS, where we're able to do things like VPC Direct Connects, and so your, you know, data never has to go out on the public web. You can kind of do those peering network connects, and we get all that full functionality baked in. So, how much in your technological past did you bring to this, or how much of this? I should actually say, how much of this is new to you? solving these types of problems versus things you've done in your past? Yeah, so in, in my past, I've had a good amount of varied experience in, in seeing different architectures, what works well in different scenarios. You know, I was director of engineering at Rakuten, and so working on e- e-commerce and payment transactions, uh, the volume of what kind of data that is. And then most recently at FI, I was a senior director of engineering there, working on, you know, all kinds of network telemetry data and that is voluminous when it comes to the yeah. level of data that entails and being able to search that. So I've seen data infrastructure that works very well in different scenarios. And so what we brought to, to Zing Data was a mix of that. We know we had to deal with scenarios where we had smaller CSV-type data sets, Google Sheet-type data sets, to large Databricks, Snowflake-type data sets, where we were looking through masses of trading data to be able to help you know, traders so in terms of the infrastructure there, you know, that was a spectrum we wanted to bring. So the Scala and Java pieces are, are very well performant in those scenarios. When it comes to LLM interactivity, I think that's a new part of the cast. That's not something that we've done very much so earlier on. We've done, you know, sort of homegrown, organic type model driven type um, development. But now when you're working with more established models, there's more API interactivity. And so those would be newer parts of the stack that we've worked with. Langchain and Llama indexes are good examples of that to get you know sort of like good paradigms on how you interact with models and kind of do LLM waterfalls as well. But yeah, so so everything else, Flutter I think is a new part of the stack as well from a mobile app perspective. You know that Flutter we started with was version 0.9. It hadn't even gotten to 1.0. So certainly some growing pains over the years. Web interactivity, for example, sort of web compilation was something that was added after we had already started working on Flutter. So we were able to do that with almost minimal effort. So those are sort of newer parts of the stack there. Yeah, it's nice solving that that sort of feature parity, especially on the mobile device standpoint, is is a challenge. I mean, having, yeah. to, having to do that before at my time at Skype, and, and I've seen sort of what a mess that can be. But then also the size of the teams you have to maintain for each of the different uh, you know, devices and sta- or stacks that are out there. It's like, oh, I've got an Android team. I've got an iOS team and I've got uh, maybe somebody working from the, the Windows device when they used to have those. Bringing all that together into a, into a you know, something like a, it sounds like Flutter is, is helping you keep that feature parity across all those platforms pretty easily, right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, it, it gets messy if we didn't have that. I mean, as a, as a small nascent company, you know, we're about 10 engineers strong at this point. We 
are smallish that having to maintain multiple bills and yeah. multiple uh, change logs and, and releases is is problematic. And so the less the more you can you can minimize that cognitive load, the better for the team and the faster we're able to move. You know, that being said, you know, Flutter also does have its downsides. I think in terms of rendering performance, the newer version of Flutter has done a good amount to help optimize that. But the earlier builds, you know, had some performance lag with respect to to the smoothness. And, you know, that can be problematic if you're trying to get to a user who is familiar with other apps and likes it to be buttery smooth. So we worked very hard to like to to work around that, but the newer Flutter versions help with that. But yeah, certainly the the cross compilation benefits are helpful. You know, that being said, we've also been been clear about who we want to target and what are the bills we want to push out. So we very easily have the ability to push out a native Mac app, uh, a native Windows app, and a native Linux app. We chose not to. We said let's focus on the iOS, Android, and the web. We think these three cover the wide variety of interactive we, we have for the customers we're targeting at present. That's not to say we won't build those, but for now, this is really helpful. As part of that, you know, um, you get iPad-level interactivity as well. With the M1 Macs, you can actually pull down an M- iPad app on your Mac, and you can kind of interact with that as well. So we, so we have sort of these, these backdoor methods to be able to get more users onto our systems, but this has been pretty performant for us for now. Yeah, I've always found that that type of development to be tricky, right? It's you get all of the developer efficiency, but you at times like you're finding out yourself you're taking these performance hits because yeah. they're writing so much abstraction on top of the, you know, the, the the native implementations or the native SDKs that are that come with all of those platforms. There were some good choices. I mean, React Native is a really good framework to doing cross compilation. We found React Web would be a little problematic at least in our initial use case. Mm-hmm. I remember the days of Cordova and PhoneGap, if you, if you yeah, remember those. I remember PhoneGap, I mean, definitely. Yeah, so you know that was something that had the promise of cross-compilation, uh, but in, in reality, it still required you to maintain the code bases. You still didn't get easy access to the native phone APIs. You know, when, I, when Apple launched their like, dynamic island and their, their new notification APIs, you know, those are things that you kind of had to wait for Flutter to pick up, and it's it's available, but it's not in the most recent release. So, you know, those are some downsides with using a cross-compilation framework, but I think the benefits far outweigh the, the cons at this point. Yeah, most definitely. And then as far as today, the interaction or the consumption is through the Zing app. Are you starting to get developers asking to embed Zing essentially in their own applications. So move beyond like, hey, I, I want to build, I want to white label, more or less kind of white label Zing or use APIs. Yeah, yeah, that has been a request and we do have that available. So there is a Zing data React SDK that you can pull down from NPM that gives you full embed functionality. And, you know, it's very much built out. The auth mechanism is, is something we put a lot of thought into. And so you get all of that right away. So you you have the benefit of, you know, being able to create a question on the Zing app by speaking to it, you have a question, and that becomes a directly embeddable question into your phone app if we need to. So we have that capability at present. It's interesting. I think the persona is very different for us. You know, the the typical embedded, the in, typical use case for embedding reports is a developer type persona, right? Somebody who wants to make that part of their app because they don't want to go through uh, the headache that it is to to actually do that 
outside of an embeddable solution like ours. And so when we were building that out, you know, the SDK and the ease of use is, is something that I pay a lot of attention to. I come from a developer tool background in, in the two companies that I've had before this. Both were geared towards developers. So, you know, docs are very important to be able to make that easy to understand. Authentication mechanisms are very important to, to get right from the, from the initial start. And so those are two things that, you know, we paid heavy importance to and we were able to get that out as part of the, the version of the product. But then the embeddable solution is something that's discoverable through our docs and through NPM, for example. And then there's the Zing app, you know, the person who's out of the trucking company or on the factory floor that never has to know something about an embeddable solution. So it's interesting, the spectrum of personas there. And then the orientation that we have for how to cater to those users in terms of documentation, in terms of help and in terms of support. And you talk about those personas. How are those personas discovering Zing? You know, what's your, what's your, you know, like, like, like Propel, I mean, we don't have a marketing team. I think right. you said earlier, you don't, you're probably relying on, uh, you know, what, what is that go to market strategy? That's, that's, you know, how are they discovering you? Yeah. So, you know, at present we're very nascent in terms of our GTM motions, you know, all of our uh, usage has been completely organic. We've done very little in the way of any ad spend or any kind of um, other spend beyond that. So, for the personas, for the developer persona, uh, you know, your typical access mechanisms are, you know, a GitHub repository or NPM or a um, organic content that speaks to here's how to get embeddable reports from your Snowflake. You know, these are problems that people are actively searching for. And we're, active, we're heavily ranked for things like that. And so in my past, this has sort of been the typical access mechanism for any developer type persona. They have a problem right now. I don't want to write a ton of code to be able to solve it. What's a good mechanism to make this available? And if I'm there on GitHub, if I'm there on NPM, if I'm there on, you know, PyPy or any other package repository, you know, I kind of build that trust from the outset. And then from a code base perspective, it's, if it's open source, if you see the SDK, if you see all the interactivity mechanism that loves, that gives you another level of trust as well. And then we kind of get to pricing and, you know, that's, that should be transparent for any, any user to be able to work with that. So those are important parts of how we gear our discoverability towards a developer persona. The other spectrum for the person who is not seeking out data tools, you know, the content that we have, which is here's how to, how to query a, a Google sheet on your phone is also yeah. actively heavily SEO'd. You know, those are people that have things like weather data on my and stock price data on my Google sheet. And I want to be able to create a budget off of this. Mm-hmm or I want to be able to do something else with this on my phone so I can check it all the time. Uh, and that's what we, that we have good content on. So those are, at least for us, some initial mechanisms of discoverability. I think there are avenues to be able to amplify each of those more. Uh, and I think that's going to be part of the journey for us in the next couple of months as well to be able to turn that up. Which one do you think has paid off more, the, the open source projects or the, the, the content? I think the content is pretty interesting. I mean, that's been sort of our initial target persona, which is the person who is not in front of a data tool right now, what's the best way to get it, get them on it? And for them, you know, the simplistic content on here's how I can sort of chart stuff on Excel, here's how I can do that on a Google Sheet, or maybe even a text file, or here's an app to do ChatGPT on. So ChatGPT on your data, right? Those are things that people kind of understand in the now. 
And uh, for us, I think that's been interesting to see that type of usage pick up. And that's been ultimately our, you know, our five-year goal. We want to be where each of those people are right now, and Zing is the tool they're using for this. Not, uh, you know, any other kind of data structure. This is my primary mechanism. For us, this is the the last mile of data consumption, uh, and we feel if we solve this right, we think this is going to be a big part of uh, how uh, how data analysis gets done. And who in the organization is writing that content? So we, we uh, open that up to everybody. Okay. So everybody on the team has a role in writing this content. You know, we, we say, uh, if you think you've had to search for this, that's probably something somebody else has had. Let's make this uh, content that's, just, that's describable. So right. between myself, you know, my uh, co-founder, uh, the engineers on the team, everybody's writing content because this is helpful for us personally. Yeah, it's it's like at this level, we're all creators, right? We we have to. Otherwise, yeah. how else do you become top of mind? How do you get out there for people to do that organic search and, and be discoverable? Because distribution is our biggest problem right now in these in these early stages. Yeah, very much so. So there's so I think so going back to your question on like what are other methods of discoverability, I think the partnership programs that we're in have also been really helpful. You know, we're we're primary partners with Starburst, you know, with Google Cloud, on Snowflake as well. So these are active mechanisms that people are, are actually seeking us out. You know, what is a primary phone-based mechanism to interact with my Databricks cluster or to interact with my Snowflake cluster? And so as we're featured on those partnerships, um, as we have joint content, those are things that bring people to us as well, uh, because this is a need they have. You know, they have uh, existing tooling on being able to do visualizations, but they don't have something that they can kind of make available to their entire sales team or my entire go-to-market team. And these are easy mechanisms to do that. Makes sense. I had a guest on the podcast probably a couple episodes ago that made a statement, and I, and I think it rings true, which is there is a high degree of entropy when it comes to data in all organizations. As you're dealing with more and more data, more companies' data, what's the level of, of chaos or entropy that, that you're seeing? I, I like to call it chaos, hence the name, the podcast, Data Chaos. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. that, that rang true to me because almost any time we go into a company, very rarely is that data in a pristine place that it's sort of ready for consumption. Sure. There's always some level of work that has to be done. Um, it does happen, but that I think is more the exception than the norm. What are, what are you, yeah. what's, what's been your experience out there? Yeah, again, it's been a spectrum for us. I think, you know, in the more simplistic data landscape users, there's been usually one or two data sources and there's one other CRM system or one kind of Salesforce or HubSpot and that's it. And that's your landscape. And there's no level of integration. There's no data repository. They have one thing that's capturing transaction data or sensor data. And what's the best way to query that? So for those users, you know, spending the effort to coalesce all that data is perhaps not worth it. I mean, in their evolution as a company, that's just not what they need for their task-oriented roles. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other spectrum where there's replicated data, there's siloed data between product teams and engineering teams, and there's just no means to be able to interact with all of them. So we've seen all of it. Uh, I think for us, you know, we are more about being able to be able to have folks analyze the data they want right then and now. Mm In terms of the journey for them to be able to analyze all their data, to join all of that, to be able to have a repository that has it all housed and all interlinked, uh, that's where we can help them with. You know, we are familiar with the data landscape and the infrastructure, and so we will assist them in being able to say, "Here, here's a good thing to roll out, and we can help you doing that. That's not a big part of what we do, uh, but 
in those cases, you know, we were able to assist with that. I mean, it's. I don't want to call. It, I think. Yeah, as I say, I don't want to. We do the same thing. I don't want to call it a, a necessary evil, but it is almost a necessity yeah. when a team comes to you and they're like, "We've got this siloed data, or we've got data in six different tables, and we've got Salesforce, and we've got everything else." How do we turn that into something that we can actually can consume from an analytical standpoint? You know, yeah. our go-to has has typically been DBT. We're just yeah. like, okay, here's how you do this. And like, you know, we've got a whole bunch of code samples that we run internally or we can give them code and like, here's how you run it. The other one that I think is starting to become interesting that we're looking at more is as we learned uh, quite a bit a lot at quite a, a bit about at the Snowflake conference was the dynamic tables. Yeah. And that's something yeah. that we're, we're starting to see a lot of noise uh, out there and people starting to adopt. Are you starting to see sort of similar trends or... What what what's I guess what's been the consult consultative nature when you get in there and you see that that chaos? Yeah, so so you know, oftentimes it's a request to say, you know, I have my product analytics data, but I can't tie it with I cannot tie it with the Salesforce opportunity, or I just can't get more insight into what I need to be telling the sales team for in terms of you know data usage. So those are sort of common things that we've seen. The DBT recommendation is also there. You know, we would say this is a good way to sort of warehouse your data. This is a good way to model it up front. And here's a way to pull that in easy. We, as part of Zing Data, allow you to be able to create joins between your multiple sources. So in your source, I can actually create a join. You know, it persists in Zing. It's not something that you kind of have to bother the data team for to, to have to create a view, you know, materialize it or not. Uh, this is something, for example, if you imagine a growth marketer who wants to be able to get quick data analysis done, can do just point and click on the on the Zing app as well. So we we understand that we you know we consult with them as well, and we offer these tools as a result of what we've seen on there. Another ask has been being able to kind of cross query multiple sources, and we think you know a query aggregator like a, a Trino or a Starburst is really good at this. There are problems when it comes to optimizing the performance. You know, the, the queries can vary in terms of response time if you stand up a Trino cluster in front of those. But, you know, we've had good experience with that. We can recommend things like Elixir that can do optimal level of S3 caching. So your queries are not required, your queries are not leading to file loads in memory all the time every time you run a second query. Mm -hmm. So, it's interesting in that scenario and it kind of varies on what the data landscape is, but we've seen we've seen the spectrum here. No, definitely. I mean, data is always messy and it's like, I feel like very much in the same boat where you sit down and have that conversation, the data is a mess and you've got like this tool chest, toolbox of, yep. of things you can go out and say, okay, well, for that, you got to bring this in here. For that, you bring this in here. There's really bring just, that, yep. I mean, there's just probably never going to be a, you know, a platform that solves all problems, but knowing how to chain those together to get that end result to where they can then consume it um, you know, in Zing yeah. is, is obviously the ultimate goal because now you've got a happy customer. Two of our, our more prominent videos on our Zing um, YouTube channel are being able to export uh, Amplitude Analytics into Google BigQuery and then also doing that with, um, with uh, Google Analytics, getting that into BigQuery and then querying that on your phone and setting alerts on your phone. It seems like very simple steps, but once you do that, you're in the start of your data journey because now you have a prominent location to house that. See, I'm interested. You guys made the choice to do the YouTube channel. We chose not to do it. We didn't want to add not to do it, not to do it because of the we just didn't want another channel that we had to manage. And I'm wondering if yep. that's biting us a little bit because obviously, like video production, there's high value there and you probably get better retention. We've chosen to stick with LinkedIn. We still do videos up there, 
and Twitter for the time okay. for the time being. And it sounds like okay. I know you guys are on LinkedIn, I'm sure, but you also chose to go YouTube as well. We chose to go YouTube, and a very interesting, uh, I wouldn't say growth vector at this point, but at least another, uh, something I forgot to mention earlier in terms of another discoverability avenue has been TikTok. Interestingly enough, when we were fundraising, when we closed our seed round, you know, one of the VCs called us the TikTok of data. And it was very much sort of a lightning moment for us to think about, yeah, you know, if I'm on my phone, there's a TikTok generation that knows how to do everything there. Why isn't data analysis another part of that? And so we've had a few videos. One uh, is of our of my co-founder, Zach, who is going up a ski lift in Tahoe at the bottom of the ski lift as he's going up, you know, is able to import data. At the top, he's able to run multiple queries on his phone. And that, for some reason or the other, <laughs> uh, is very has the most views that we've seen. So when you started Zing, which of you between the two co-founders actually had TikTok on your phones? Certainly, Zach, not me. I, I, <laughs> I have to get on my phone. <laughs> I don't have it. I, I, I agree. Kids, I, I think one of my kids will have them before I do. I am going to try to keep my kids away from it, but I, I don't have it on my phone either. And I was in a similar situation. I was at dinner uh, with some friends here in the community we live in. And he's a big marketer specifically for a bike company that's they're trying to bring this bike over. I want to say it's from Europe and they're trying to establish themselves here. They're pretty pricey bikes. And okay. he, as we were talking about how do we market, I didn't mention TikTok. And he stops me. He's like, how are you not on TikTok? I was like, I don't even have mm. TikTok on my phone. I mean, that's not something I want. I don't even understand that generation. Like the, 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 the low attention span, sort of like flashy yep. videos. I'm like, I wouldn't even know how to make that. He's like, you have to be on TikTok. Do you think I've got on TikTok? No, I haven't done it. But it sounds like that's been a great channel for you. So maybe, maybe I'm missing something here. I would recommend it. One of our users actually came through that channel, you know, and again, if you're showing helpful content on TikTok, I think that's all that matters. You obviously don't want to be less of an ad or less of a flashy yeah. kind of long form content, but short form content, here's how to, here's a, a quick way to do some level of data analysis. I think it rings true. So, so who's building it? Among the cat videos. Among the cat videos. Yeah. Find this. <laughs> yeah, it's there. There's Zing data. Oh, there's a pretty cat. Cool. No, that's yeah. Uh, and, and it's some level of cognition to say, okay, I know I have to do this at work tomorrow. This is a good way to do, <laughs> to think about. So now, is that something you're outsourcing, or is is your co-founder doing that? Oh, it's it's all organic. We we have you know a few mix of data tools, and again, if we're talking about this AI landscape, I think it's been pretty interesting to see the number of AI tools specifically geared towards video production and content production, and it's been helpful for for you know people like us that have twenty other million things to do. No kidding. That this becomes an easy part of uh, a quick way to do it as well. No, I mean I agree. It's just like you need those tools now because otherwise, if I'm having to do all the editing, the content creation, the, the recording, right. everything else like that, I and write code and deal with cost and you know go to market customers sale you, you name it it's like there's just not enough hours in the day not enough hours that's crazy well that's super interesting i would not have i would not have thought coming out of this conversation that you know y'all are on tiktok i think that's uh, that's that's pretty cool and maybe a learning moment here for uh, for us at propel and myself I, I think it sort of also lends itself to the type of product we are. Yeah. We are a mobile geared product. Yeah, we, we anticipate that Gen Z is going to be the prominent workforce. And this is sort of the, 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 the best interface or mechanism for that, them to get work done. So why not be on TikTok? Absolutely. 
Well, Saban, I think this has been a really fun conversation. I've enjoyed it a ton. I've learned a lot about mobile-first business intelligence and all of the challenges that you're solving there at Zing Data, and definitely appreciate you joining me here on the Data Chaos Podcast. Absolutely. Likewise, Tyler, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Excellent. Well, have yourself a great day, and we'll uh, hopefully talk again soon. Thank you.